1967, two psychiatrists, Thomas Holmes and Richard Rahe, by name, devised a scale to measure stress in human beings, one which has been used extensively ever since that date. They gave each life event that might cause stress a rating. The higher the rating, the more the stress, and the increased likelihood of illness, or even, in extreme cases, a breakdown. So the highest rating was 100 units, the death of one's spouse or a child, marriage rated 50 units, pregnancy 40 units, a new family member 39, moving house 20, and so on. Interestingly, right down at the bottom of the scale, uh, at the bottom of the list, is Christmas, which is rated at 12 points. I guess that some of us might rate it a little, or even a lot, higher. For Christmas is a time of extreme busyness and accompanying tensions and strains. There's the last-minute shopping for those last-minute presents. How about socks for Grandad? And perfume for her? Or is it the right brand? And what about the Christmas tree? That's right, we got a Bethany one this year, a caring Christmas tree. This is all personal testimony, by the way. But where are the Christmas decorations? They're somewhere in the garage. And the Christmas lights, but, oh dear, the lights don't work. Which bulb is missing? And where are the spare bulbs that we put away specially last year? And then you place all the presents underneath the tree, and you look at them and ask yourself, have I forgotten something or someone? And then there's the Christmas dinner, a military exercise. Don't forget to defrost the Christmas turkey as the fresh ones were sold out. And make sure you get fresh, not old bristle sprouts, and fresh, not old cranberries to make the sauce. This again is based on personal testimony. And 101 other things that I am ignorant of. And make sure everything is cooked at the right time so we can finally sit down for a family Christmas dinner. And when it's all over, we shall collapse in a heap and watch the Queen's Christmas speech on television. Twelve points. More like 200. From a human perspective, the first Christmas was a time of extreme stress for Mary and Joseph. Pregnancy rates. 40 on the scale. <clears throat> and the circumstances of this particular unusual pregnancy, the suspicions it aroused, would surely have added greatly to the stress. And how do you rate a long journey, either on foot or traditionally on a donkey, in the last stages of pregnancy, added to which a crowded city, nowhere to stay except an outside barn, and a newborn baby laid in an animal feeding trough. But there was no stress or panic in the courts of heaven for the first Christmas. 
All the events surrounding it had been planned in meticulous detail. Not just for the normal nine months during which Mary carried her unique baby, but for hundreds of years before. In fact, in God's plan and foreknowledge, the first Christmas was actually planned in eternity and put into place in human history on that fateful day when our first parents turned against their creator and were driven from paradise. The birth of Jesus was the fulfillment of God's promise on that day when the Lord spoke to his adversary, the serpent Satan, and said, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Genesis 3, verse 15. In our final carol that we'll sing in a few minutes from now, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, Charles Wesley's final verse is often omitted, probably because few understand it. Come, desire of nations, come, fix in us thy humble home, rise the woman's conquering seed, bruise in us the serpent's head. Sing we then, with angels sing, glory to the newborn king, glory in the highest heaven, peace on earth and sins forgiven. So God's great plan, conceived in eternity, promised throughout human history, finally came into operation on the day that we call Christmas Day, the day when Christ was born. It was then, I would suggest to you, the perfectly planned Christmas. So let me simply, for a few moments, focus on this theme. And I want to read from Scripture, not one of the traditional uh, Christmas readings, Uh, but one that is indeed about Christmas. It's written by the Apostle Paul to the Christians in Galatia. Galatians chapter 4. Let me read the verses and they'll come on the screen. And let's just follow them together. This is what he says. But when the time had fully come, God sent his Son, born of a woman, born under law, to redeem those under law, that we might receive the full rights of sons. Because you are sons, God sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, the Spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And since you are a son, God has made you also an heir. But, when the time had fully come, God sent His Son. Not a moment too soon, not a moment too late, Mary gives birth to her son, to God's son. The most momentous event in human history goes almost unnoticed on earth. But in heaven, angelic choirs rejoice that God's perfect plan is now in operation and sing their anthem to shepherds, to startle shepherds watching their flocks by night. And in these verses in Galatians 4, We're told that God's plan has two parts, two purposes for human beings. What we might describe as a Christmas gift with two parts. First of all, God sent his son that we might be redeemed from slavery. And God sent, secondly, God also sent his spirit so that we might be adopted into his family. So, he says, writing to Christians, you are no longer 
a slave, but a son. So look with me then at this Christmas time, at God's perfect plan, this good news of great joy for all people. First of all, God sent his son so that we might be redeemed from slavery, no longer a slave. Most of us know from personal experience, especially at Christmas time, what it means to be in debt. The bill on the plastic card begins to mount up, and with it the interest payable. Next month it gets a little more, and so on. Eventually, it is all too possible to be in a position where you can hardly pay the interest, let alone the outstanding debt. In the ancient world, if you couldn't pay a debt you owed, there was always a last resort. To sell yourself, or maybe even your family, into slavery in order to pay off the debt. It was a terrible price to pay. For a slave lost his rights and liberties and became the property of someone else. In Galatians 4, verse 3, Paul states that all of us at one time were in slavery under the basic principles of the world. It's a little difficult to understand what he means by this, but it probably refers to all those human rules and regulations which people, especially religious people, try to keep in order to please God. And the problem is this, the harder we try to please God, the more we fail, and the further in debt we get. And into slavery we fall. On one occasion, Jesus spoke on this theme to some of his hearers, Jewish religious leaders. And he said to them, if you follow my teaching, you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. His hearers objected strenuously. We are Abraham's descendants. We've never been slaves of anyone. The answer of Jesus is surprising and applies to us all, for it tells us that slavery is a universal human problem. Jesus replied, I tell you the truth, everyone who sins is a slave of sin. The Apostle Paul knew about this from his own experience. He was a morally upright man, tried to keep God's law. And yet he writes of the terrible slavery that he found himself in. This is what he writes. We know that the law, what God tells us is right and wrong, is spiritual. But I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I don't do. But what I hate, I do. And if I do what I don't want to do, I agree the law is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but sin living in me. I know that nothing good lives in me, that is in my sinful nature. I have the desire to do good, but I cannot carry it out. For what I do is not the good I want to do, no, the evil I don't want to do. This is what I keep doing. Here's the struggle which each one of us faces. A desperate predicament which is at the root of all our problems. There are some people who never face up to this. They make excuses about being as good as the next person. They promise every New Year's Day to t- turn over a new leaf. But there is no way out, humanly speaking. For the slavery gets worse, the habits become more ingrained, until in the end, all hope is gone. For the Bible says the wages of sin is death. Now in the ancient world, there was one way in which a man who would become a slave could be freed. That was, if someone else paid off the debt he owed. Maybe a relative heard that his kinsman had fallen on hard times and was now a slave. He could come and pay the price for his freedom. The word used 
to pay the price and buy the person back is a Hebrew word translated redeem, to buy back. And these verses tell us that at Christmas, God sent his son into the world to free us from slavery. Here's the good news when God's perfect plan comes into operation. Freedom through, from slavery through Jesus. Look again what it says. We were in slavery, but when the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under law, to redeem those under law. Notice two things mentioned about the birth of Jesus. He was first of all born of a woman. The real humanity of Jesus. Jesus is, and always has been, the eternal Son of God. There was never a time when he was not the Son of God. But in his incarnation, he became the Son of Man, one of us. Taking on human flesh, identifying fully with us, born of a woman, born of the Holy Spirit. In God's perfect plan, he had to become like us, if he was to save us. But something else was also essential. He was born of a woman and also born under law, the sinless life of Jesus. Jesus lived and kept all the moral demands of God's law in his human nature, tempted and tested as we are, yet without sin. The only person ever before or since who has done that. In consequence, he was able to pay the price for our sin. The wages which our sin deserved, death. By dying to set us free, only in this way could we be redeemed. So Paul writes to Christians in Ephesus about this redemption through Jesus. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. And Peter writes in his first letter, For you know it is not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, that you were redeemed from the empty way of life, handed down to you from your forefathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. Now you may say, hang on a minute, this is about Easter, not Christmas. But you cannot understand the baby Jesus without the man Jesus. You cannot understand the birth of Jesus without the death of Jesus. You cannot understand Christmas without Easter. You cannot understand the manger without the cross. God sent his son to clear our debt so that we might be freed from slavery. In him we have redemption. Let me ask you this evening, do you know what that means? Do you know what it means to be free from the power of sin? And the slavery it brings us into in our habits and our lives. This is what Jesus came into the world to do, to set us free. But that is not all. For notice the second stage in God's perfect plan. A second part of God's Christmas gift. God sent his spirit so that we might be adopted into his family. No longer a slave, but a son. What happens to the freed slave? Paul says we are redeemed so that we might receive the full rights of sons. The literal meaning is the adoption as sons. Here's a wonderful picture of God's plan. Not only are we redeemed, but when God redeems us and sets us free, he brings us into his family. We are adopted into God's family. The Son of God became the Son of Men, so that sons and daughters of men might become sons and daughters of God. In his first letter, the Apostle John writes to his fellow Christians about this change of name. How great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God and that is what we are. But there is more to it than just a change of name. There is also a change of nature. 
Human adoption, wonderful though it is, can never change your birth or your nature. What will a freed slave do? Will he not more than likely get further into debt than end up in slavery again? Left to his own devices, perhaps so. Left to our own devices, we would end up slaves to sin again. But when we become members of God's family, we become his children by nature. Because you are his sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls our Abba Father. Paul describes the Holy Spirit here as the spirit of his son, emphasizing that he makes us like Jesus. We are brought into that most intimate of relationships with God, that of a child with his or her father, so we can address God in the most familiar terms, Abba, Father as Jesus did when he was on earth. As Wesley puts it again in the hymn, we'll sing in a moment, Mild he lays his glory by, born that man no more may die, born to raise the sons of earth, born to give them second birth. He sends his spirit to live within us, to live the kind of life that is humanly impossible, but powerfully possible, supernaturally possible. And if that is not all, Paul then concludes with these words, a final Christmas promise. And since you are a son, God has made you also an heir. An heir is someone who looks forward to something in the future like children look forward to Christmas Day. And the size of the present depends on the wealth of the parent, unfortunately. But in God's family, we have everything to look forward to. In time and in eternity, God's perfect plan is still in place. Nothing can change it. All that we now await is the return of his son from heaven a second time. Not as a baby, but as a king. Not in obscurity, but in the sight of all. What a wonderful promise to look forward to at this Christmas time. So, in conclusion, here's the good news. A Christmas gift with two parts. God sent his son. God sent his spirit. And God has made you also an heir. The question is, have we received these wonderful gifts? The sad reality is that most people fail to recognize and receive Jesus when he came into the world. Our last reading from the Gospel of John reminds us that Jesus was an unwanted gift. He was in the world. Though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. But we read on that he's a gift to be received. Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. When we receive Jesus, God the Father receives us into his family, welcomes us as in that wonderful parable that Jesus told of the prodigal son returning back into the family, being welcomed home as a son. I conclude by asking you this evening, have you received him? Let me finish with the words of another carol we've already sung, which may now take on greater significance for you. How silently, how silently the wondrous gift is given. So God imparts to human hearts the blessings of his heaven. No ear may hear his coming, but in this world of sin, where meek souls will receive him, still the dear Christ enters in. Let us pray.